Welcome to the ALN podcast series. Today's episode is brought to you by the Andrew James Advisory Group. AJAG provides training in the ISO 55000 standard, and our world-class training qualifies students to take the ALN A55K certification exam, an industry recognition of an individual's knowledge of the standard. Certified individuals add value to any organization's asset management initiatives. Realizing your ISO 55000 vision need not be painful. Visit us at www.andrewjamesadvisory.com to see how we can help. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome. Thank you all for being here today. I am Nick Kanoki, the Director of Technology for the Asset Leadership Network, and I am very excited for today's program, the Roundtable, as a part of this uh, Spring Summit, Microgrid Asset Leadership. Um, we have a, a variety of exciting events coming up starting here today and continuing on into Wednesday and Thursday. So hopefully you can uh, make it to a few of these exciting programs. Um, before we get underway, I do just want to thank our patron sponsors. Uh, they make things that we do here at the ALN possible, uh, as well as our other organizational members. Uh, Grant Thornton, uh, represented by Motion Nelson, is here today with us. Uh, as well as Trent Port Services and John Arnup. Um, so really grateful for the continued involvement of our organizational members as a network. We are uh, really just uh, connecting uh, people, leaders in various industries around asset leadership and management. And now uh, just a brief slide about the next few days. Uh, Mike, Executive Director of the ALN, you wanna talk a little more? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Nick. And uh, yes, today's roundtable is leading off the Spring Summit. And uh, we're focusing on microgrid asset management because we were fortunate enough to meet uh, Dr. Dorothy Robin on, uh, through the uh, National Academy of Sciences Board on Infrastructure and Constructed Environment. She's a board member there. She's also a senior fellow at Boston University Institute for Sustainability. And she has an illustrious past in the federal uh, government. She was with the White House Economic Council for uh, eight years and was uh, head of facilities for the DOD and the head of facilities for GSA, which basically made her in charge of all US buildings, uh, buildings at one point. Um, and through uh, her involvement in the uh, DOD, she understood the importance of microgrids uh, for mission success and sees uh, that as being uh, important to uh, our future and our ability to meet our electric needs. But I'll let her talk about that more. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Tony McGrail is uh, the IEEE uh, Asset Management Committee Chair and uh, Doble Engineering. He's the Solutions Director for uh, Asset Management and Monitoring Technology. And uh, John Arnup is uh, CEO of Trent Port Services, a new uh, ALN member. And uh, timing couldn't have been any better because it turns out ports are microgrids in and of themselves. And he has a lot to say about the policies and asset management uh, strategies for uh, port microgrids. And uh, Moshe Nelson, who's a longtime ALN senior fellow and principal of Grant Thornton Public Sector, uh, um, wanted to uh, write about uh, reconstructing Ukraine. And that combined with microgrids, let, uh, Dorothy sent us an, a newsletter from Microgrid Knowledge. Thank you, Microgrid Knowledge. It's a shout out to a, an excellent uh, sector uh, newsletter that had on its cover of the first one she sent to me, uh, Footprint Project, which was donating solar microgrids to Ukraine. So tomorrow we're gonna be talking about their actual solar microgrids that are over there, how they plan to use them. Our other patron, another patron member, uh, Onuma, Inc. is going to be showing how to model them and uh, show their deployment. And then um, John Arnup has a couple patents on a green ammonia um, generator that is container sized. 
that can be shipped to Ukraine and used for health care scenarios that we're developing to demonstrate how microgrids can be used to help reconstruct Ukraine. And then on Thursday, uh, Paul Shmodoloka, who is the uh, head of new uh, US energy, who's Ukrainian American, is Ukrainian wife, is the connection to Ukraine for the footprint project. And he is gonna be talking with us about how microgrids are being deployed and used in Ukraine. And so this very theoretical exercise on microgrid asset management is quickly becoming uh, based in reality and it's uh, quite um, exciting. Uh, but today we wanna to start off by uh, letting uh, Dorothy have some time to explain to us what she sees as the importance of microgrids. So thank you for starting this off, Dorothy. Did you realize what you got rolling? Yeah, no, I didn't. That's, that's wonderful. Um, no, I've been a proselytizer for microgrids for uh, 13 years now. Um, as Mike mentioned uh, microgrid knowledge. It is a wonderful publication. It comes every day. It's one page and it's got some interesting uh, a story or essay about microgrids. So uh, if you're not already a subscriber, you should you should be. And they had a, a just a couple of weeks ago, they, the, the headline of their daily piece was microgrids as the next duct tape. And I loved that headline because I thought it was a reference to the um, the fact that you can use microgrids to do so many different things. Actually, it was a reference to uh, to the Department of Defense. So I'm just going to read you the first uh, the first sentence or the first two sentences. Um, in its quest to improve national security, the U.S. military often inadvertently advances innovations that benefit us in everyday life. The military gets credit for microwaves, GPS, and duct tape, to name a few. It looks like future historians may add microgrids to the list. I actually didn't know about the, the duct tape. Uh, um, so I'm going to make three quick points today about the Department of Defense and advanced stationary microgrids, which are relevant to fixed installations, military bases that are permanent or semi-permanent, like Fort Belvoir or Pax River in, in this area. Um, and then if I have time, I'll say just a word about, um, about tactical microgrids. Um, so the first point I want to make is that, that advanced microgrids are a must-have for DOD's fixed installations. DOD has around 500 uh, military bases, mostly in the United States. Um, they depend almost entirely on the commercial grid. That was not true historically. Historically, they were very vert vertically integrated with their own power source, but they got away from that. They rely on the commercial grid. Um, major electric power outages, as many of you know, are increasing in number and severity in the U.S., and military bases experience more and longer outages than um, other utility customers because bases tend to be located in outlying areas where it takes longer to uh, restore power. Now the concern, uh, if you're a military base, is not losing power for a couple of hours or even a day. The concern is that it goes on for uh, many days or conceivably even, even weeks. Um, the current remedy for that, the current backup, the current insurance policy is the emergency diesel generator, EDG. Um, one generator hardwired to every building on a base that operates a, crit a critical load, and typically about 40% of the electrical load on a base is considered critical, mission critical, or life safety, the hospital, the, the, the fire station, so forth. Um, so emergency diesel generators are, there's a lot I could say about them. They're convenient, they're cheap, they are not reliable, and they're really environmentally dirty. But the main thing is they are not reliable. So we really need a better, a better solution. And microgrids are that, are that solution. 
And the two huge advantages are, um, first of all, and most important, is smart microgrid allows a base to island, to island, to, to untie from the grid during a grid outage and tap into its own distributed energy resources, renewable energy or, or other, other um, uh, distributed resources, including interconnected diesel generators if we get to, to that point in order to maintain power to critical loads. So that's huge. That is just enormous if you're a military base. And then second, in, in grid tied mode, while the microgrid is operating parallel to the grid, um, a base can use the microgrid to better manage its own power use by consuming on-site solar energy, by shifting load. If you've got a big um, large-scale energy storage uh, technology, that, that's really valuable because then um, you can reduce your utility costs a lot. Military bases tend to have very large peak demand charges because they operate 24-7. So um, two huge advantages for bases. Second point I want to make is that because of um, these advantages, DOD has been very involved in trying to get commercial systems to, to the market. This new technology came, came along around 2009, 2010. It was out of the garage, but not yet on the shelf. And so what DOD did in my office um, had, was very involved in this, was to um, actually fund uh, commercial vendors to test and validate their technology on military bases. So using military bases as a distributed test bed began with very, very simple microgrids, and then they became ever more complex, meaning they were integrating multiple sources of baseload uh, power and more and more higher levels of intermittent solar and, and uh, wind. Um, and um, uh, recent demonstrations, they've done three to four dozen formal demonstrations. Each one is funded at a couple million dollars. So DOD is paying the vendor to do this, to refine its technology. Um, and the recent demonstrations are focused a lot on cyber and on incorporation of energy storage. Um, military bases are an ideal test bed because they've got really complex uh, uh, needs and they're really big. And so, for example, General Electric's microgrid controller went from a three-year demonstration at 29 Palms Marine Corps Base in the Mojave Desert to the commercial uh, market. So DOD very involved in, in demonstrating these systems so as to accelerate the commercialization. Third point I wanna make is having spent a decade demonstrating and validating advanced microgrids and energy storage technologies, DOD is now positioned to become a high volume early adopter of both of those. Um, so the Army has said they want a microgrid on every Army base by 2035. In addition to DOD's 500 military bases, there are several hundred smaller National Guard bases that are uh, potential customers for this. And I'll mention two of these. Do I have time? How am I doing on, on time? Um, maybe I'll just mention one. <laughs> no, we go right ahead. This is fascinating. We've okay. got a while from one of the audience members, so I think you're okay. doing well. Okay, so uh, let me I'll quickly mention two of them. The one that's gotten the most publicity is at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego, and that began with an ESTCP demonstration uh, and just one, some solar PV in one building, and now it's become the, the whole base, and it, it, in addition to there's baseload diesel and natural gas generation, solar PV, um, landfill methane gas. The city of Santa, San Diego operates its, its landfill on land it leases from, uh, from Miramar. Uh, and then to deal with the intermittency of landfill gas um, output, they have a lot of uh, battery, uh, battery power. So they're saving a lot on, ut on ut their utility charges. But in the summer of 2020, um, when there are these rolling blackouts throughout California, Miramar provided backup power uh, to the grid, allowing San Diego Gas and Electric to avoid rolling blackouts to thousands of homes. In the event of an extended out outage, the microgrid is designed to sustain Miramar's defense mission while also providing emergency infrastructure, including its airfield, which can accommodate aircraft of all sizes for state and local government operations. 
Uh, and then on a very different one is at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine. This is an energy savings performance contract in ESPC with Amoresco, which is a terrific ESCO. Um, Portsmouth um, does 24-7 repair of submarines. Um, they suffer a lot of outages for, for reasons having to do with their location. Um, using an ESTC P grant, Amoresco put in a microgrid with what's called fast load shed capability to uh, combine heat and power plants, cogen plants, to allow the shipyard, if when the grid goes down, to shed non-essential load and maintain, use the, the cogen to maintain um, power for the critical uh, operations. Now, Amoresco has expanded that um, added more cogen, and they will be operating this system over the course of the 22-year uh, contract. Um, uh, okay, the last point, and I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna give you uh, one or two sentences. DoD has also been developing microgrids for use in contingency operations, forward operating bases. That wasn't my part of the <laughs> the Pentagon, so I know less about that. Those are very different, and I'm not sure where the Ukraine one that may be because it's mobile, more like more like DoD's tactical microgrids. Um, the key difference is they operate without ever time. There is no grid when you're in a forward operating base. There is no grid, so you're using the tactical. It's a mobile microgrid. It's it it is it it's flown in. It's something that's um, easy enough to use that people without technical training can operate it in the field. Um, it has a lot of potential for, uh, for developing uh, countries and there, there's a lot to be said about that as well. But I think I've gone over my time. Oh, no, uh, that was great. And uh, in response to your uh, comments about our uh, theoretical exercise for Ukraine. Yes, we are uh, thinking in terms of more like a forward operating base where we're having a medical facility that is solely uh, powered by the uh, um, uh, microgrids that are being established and that the microgrids are supporting uh, the deficient uh, energy power that's there. And, and we're just doing, very, the people we're working with are doing real world activities. But what we're doing is a theoretical exercise to show what is possible in just the microgrid aspect of uh, reconstructing uh, Ukraine and assisting in that uh, situation. So um, uh, now we'll go on to uh, Tony McGrail, who um, has uh, some slides to illustrate some of uh, the points that he's making uh, that he's going to clip through very quickly once we uh, are able to get him to turn on. Tony, if you're there, oh, there we go. I'm there in theory and in practice. <laughs> okay. So I've got Thank to say you. that uh, Tony is the person who helped me understand what asset management was. I went to the first uh, Asset Leadership Network uh, conference in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting there for half a day, kind of scratching my head what this is all about, and Tony comes up and says, uh, uh, can anybody tell me something that's not an asset? Nobody said anything, and then Tony said, okay, so we're talking about everything. I'm like, all right, I get it. Uh, everything that we can use to improve human life is an asset that deserves to be managed in a structured way to improve that asset and improve the mission outcome. And it's so good that uh, uh, Dorothy has uh, the DOD experience because DOD understands mission. And ISO 55000 is very much a mission-based approach. Uh, but anyway, so that's uh, a little introduction about Tony. And Tony, I'll let you talk more about uh, your background. Thank you for your Thank you for this uh, short non-point. Um, there's a number of times that I've been asked what asset management is, and that's one example of an answer. Well, depends on the day, you get different answers. So a little bit of history on myself. I've worked in the industry for a number of decades. The interesting thing I find is that the technical challenges 
that we face today are more complex, basically because there are more things interacting in more different ways than we have ever seen before. And if we go back to the early days of the electric system, Pearl Street in New York, for example, or out in Western Massachusetts, they were little microgrids. So we go through some basic points, assuming I can work out how to move the slides forward. And just as an abstraction, and imagine you've got a big figure, does a big job. You could replace that if you so desired with little figures. And as long as you coordinate them well, everything is going to be good. So you can do an awful lot of work in short space of time, huge amount of parallel going on. Unfortunately, if they're uncoordinated, they're going to get in each other's way and there's going to be problems. And the reason I mention this, this is that with microgrids, you have to be very careful about how you use them, how you apply them, and how they interact. So if I've got a storm going on and I've got a big truck with batteries on it and I've got the right equipment, I can use the truck batteries to power my house to make sure the fridge keeps going, to keep the lights on, maybe use generating a little bit of heat. I have to be careful though, if I've got a neighbor with a truck and another neighbor with a truck and they're doing the same thing as to how to join them together. Someone has to know how all electric systems work together so that they don't start to interfere with each other or cause trouble. And it's a safety issue. And the one thing I've learned over the years with the electric supply system, is you don't mess with electricity. You've got to be safe. And I always start with safety. Just as a background on IEEE, I am chair of the working group on asset management under the PSOPE committee. This is a particular group who once a year is part of the IEEE Power and Energy Society general meetings. And what we find is that we love to share ideas on the asset management side of things. What is interesting is that initially some people had the idea that IEEE would write our own standards. And um, one of the things I fought against was having another standard on asset management, you know, with all the other ones that you can find in different places. Let's keep things simple. I'll come back to that a little bit later, but no new standards. IEEE has lots of standards, lots of guidelines. So top one, standard for testing of microgrid controllers. Next one, standard for specification of controllers, standard for doing planning and design of microgrids. Uh, the one at the bottom, which is probably most relevant to what Dorothy was talking about with the tactical microgrids, is DC microgrids for rural and remote electricity access, typically operated without uh, connection to a main grid. These are all documents which can be used, they're available, they help identify what is needed, and they are very useful references to make sure that the microgrids that we've put together will operate either standalone or Island of mode, as it's called, or in reconnected modes, the transition between the two stages. The IEC is the International Electrotechnical Commission. The IEEE is a US focused organization. But again, there are, in this case, not standards, but guidelines. Little along the Morgan Bartholomew line, guidelines. You can't require someone to meet their guidelines, whereas you can require someone to meet standards. It has been in the IEC also has a very nice little document from many years ago now on microgrids for disaster recovery and preparedness. It's a very easy read, a lot of information in there. Quite a few of the disasters it talks about are not really microgrid focused, but they do talk about how microgrids would be very useful in supporting. ISO 55,000 relevant. Two of the things that I'd bring out from 55,000 would be, for example, if we're buying a microgrid to put somewhere, how do we know we've got one which is going to last long enough to do the useful things it's supposed to do? Does it come with a warranty? How do we get it fixed if it breaks down? Who's going to look after it? How do we maintain it? All the standard things you think of as something which you're buying is going to be not inexpensive. Um, how do you identify what the performance characteristics are? How do we then expect that we're meeting those characteristics? If it's using contingency operation and suddenly it's a heavy load, how do we make sure that it can survive that load? What are the contingency characteristics in the specification? And finally, risk management. If it does go wrong, sorry, if it can go wrong, it will. What happens then? And a lot of work at the moment on cybersecurity across the electric supply system and critical infrastructure in North America and elsewhere. 
what are we going to do for cyber security on our little grids? Is it going to be the case that we have a DC grid, a, pro, uh, a frontline application? How do we make sure that the grid isn't going to be taken down by some hacker with a little cell phone attached to a USB cable that presses the right button and suddenly it goes dark again? A lot of this is discussed, for example, by Anastasia O'Malley at Con Ed, who coordinated Edison, did a very nice presentation at the last global conference in March of this year on substation resilience, which transfers over very nicely into microgrids. Just as a note, we need to keep language simple. One of the things I found while looking for ISO 55,000 microgrid references was the ISO New England, and that's the independent system operator. And ISO New England, ISO is a completely different thing to ISO for the International Standards Organization. So, just reflects back when we're looking for things of interest, we might find them in places like what we're looking for. And that's what we're Excellent, Tony. So, uh, yes, uh, what you were saying about the, the assets and keeping track. The Asset Leadership Network is trying to help each industry sector understand the way ISO 55,000, 55,001 and 2 can help them improve the performance. And uh, it's great to be focusing on microgrids and having your background in this area to contribute to the discussion, which uh, I think will get uh, very interesting. Um, but right now we want to continue on uh, with uh, John Arnup. And uh, John has uh, more than 30 years experience doing uh, asset management uh, for grids, uh, for ports. And <clears throat> surprisingly, microgrids are part of ports. So I'll let John uh, explain that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. And um, yeah, so. John Arnup with over 30 years in the port industry, but just listening here and listening before, I think um, everything is transferable. So a lot of what we have and do and think of in ports uh, is, is very much scalable and transferable to other sectors and um, both at the strategical and, and tactical levels, I think for sure. So, so I'm here uh, just really to support the, um, the discussion and, and certainly around ports, of course. <clears throat> so ports, when we talk about their own um, microgrid, uh, I mean, in effect, they are, and there was three elements to that, you know, where you have a, a, a utility provider providing the microgrid uh, called the port, um, then you have other ports that are completely disconnected from the uh, utility providers. Uh, and still today, they're a very modern port I'm aware of in uh, Africa that runs off a, a generator set that we actually specified and put down there. But, um, but still today, and that's been running for 14 years uh, in that way. And then you have others that uh, have mini microgrids within the terminal. So where there's not enough power and so they create, a, if you like, a mini microgrid by putting a generator on the large cranes. So you have the offices running off the utilities and you have the cranes running uh, on their own sustainable power. Um, and so you have those three elements and, uh, you know, in, in terms of being able to sort of move and, uh, and adapt. Um, and they each of those could morph into something different. You know, the generator could be plugged into a different supply or into the um, utility. So, so yeah, really, and listening to- The fascinating thing that you told me was that the cranes generate energy themselves. Well, that's right, Mike, yeah. So, <clears throat> so on a, being able to utilize that, so they, it's not so much of the complexity, but um, it's, there is a lot of efficiencies that can be gained by a port working. So if you look at a port, operating and you see these uh, cranes, uh, any type of crane, if it's, if it's set up in a certain way, it will, read, it will become a, an electrical generator. So it creates its own power. Um, and so having a- When the lowers, when yeah. lowered, it yeah. creates resistance that That's, needs to be redirected to another use or burnt off, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So if you if you look at it in its most simplest uh, form, and you and you have an electrical circuit uh, within the terminal, its own microgrid. So when the crane uh, is lowering, uh, it will generate power and put that into the grid. And anything in that grid can pick it up and reuse it. That could be a light, it could be a reefer, it could be another crane hoisting. So a lot of that energy. Um, so the design of the grid is important um, because there are good ways of designing a grid and not so good ways where you lose the um, the efficiency, you lose that opportunity to uh, to make the most of that regenerated power. So, um, so there, so there's some interesting dynamics within the own microgrid, and and of course, when you disconnect the big products like the cranes out of the system, then they no longer offer those efficiencies back in um, to the grid itself. So, uh, so some interesting dynamics, and um, as I said, you know. And you um, have long-term experience with asset management going uh, back to past 55 and probably even before that. So you have seen the value of applying uh, asset management to ports and subsequently to the microgrids that operate in ports. What are some of the uh, successes or, or benefits that you've seen from uh, applying asset management at ports? Uh, yeah, Mike, the, uh, we worked, or I worked, and I led a, a team in one of the largest global port operators um, today, uh, and I worked with the chairman of uh, ISO previous, was the past 55, Rhys Davis, and uh, we worked together for quite some years, um, and we took past 55, then that became ISO 55, and I turned it into uh, what we called um, ISO 55 for ports. So because we were trying to create a language at the tactical level and the strategical level. So rather than go in with an ISO paper, I had to create a story that appealed to the, the technician on the ground and the CEO uh, in the port. So we developed um, that and started uh, delivering. Um, and, and obviously, funny enough, the, one of the key uh, risk areas of a port that we were always um, focused and dealing with was around the electrical system. Um, and simply because you have uh, a dangers within the electrical system, and so there was a lot of uh, revelations there. But then you have the the mini microgrid situation. You have the people that are completely off grid and and trying to self sustain through a generator. So each port uh, within the electrical side and the ISO world had a had different risks around around that. But I think um, developing uh, and evolving a, a specific asset management ISO 55 for ports at that tactical and, and strategical level, I think what, what were the big uh, takeaway items? Uh, risk and money, uh, if I could sort of nail it uh, on one. And risk, because uh, we did a tremendous amount of work on risk, um, because if you took the broad spectrum of everybody in the port, they don't always understand risk. Um, they understand it as a desktop exercise, but not in an operational way where they can see it day to day uh, and prioritize and, and act on it. So, so that was a big uh, revelation in terms of risk and money at the capex and opex level is a is a clear one, and uh, we had a number of wins along that. And from our previous. Uh... Uh, discussions, uh, you mentioned something about policy, and it's it's as much policy as it is technical capabilities, is that some ports are not able to connect back into the grid because the grids are not uh, sufficient uh, in their technological development to receive them back. So in order to actually maximize the value of ports and its energy generation capabilities, policy and technical capabilities have to be put in place to allow that to happen wherever there are ports. Hmm. Yeah, there was a number of discussions, Mike, and a lot of those run with the utility companies. Um, so, uh, and I, we did get involved in, in one or two. Some uh, just don't engage, some do, uh, depending on the country. So, you know, we had some where there was smart metering involved, where you could have a a transfer of excess power back into the, the main grid. Others simply refuse to allow that to happen. And, and that, that is by virtue of the uh, microgrid of the port, if you like, being a, a generator and a consumer 
um, at the same time for every minute of the, the day that the, the port is working. So, and then you have um, other age old uh, problems where you have old terminal uh, grid designs, which are, uh, I certainly witnessed and people modernize that, but people, I mean, the utility companies modernize it. And by doing so, they come and cut into it uh, for easier fault finding. So they do it for all of the right reasons. But what I have seen is real actual data where the port with multiple cranes, it should be uh, efficient in the way that it uses uh, electricity became, it stood out on the graph because it wasn't. Uh, and that was because the cranes were operating in silos and weren't producing the opportunity and efficiency um, that they could or should have been, which turned into a discussion with the utility company um, who did listen. And, uh, and that did affect the design of ongoing expansion work. So, um, so it's, a, it's a bit of a moving target, but some of the utility companies are not always the easiest to, and, and not easy to change on their side. It's not because they don't want to. It is some, they have their own difficulties that go beyond your borders and they have to be understood. Yes. And uh, to transition into Moshe, um, you have, uh, so Moshe, if you want to come on, um, uh, John has done work on ports in uh, the Ukraine, and it's a port that is currently um, closed down, and to uh, Moshe's point, Nick, if you could uh, show the uh, um, link to uh, the paper uh, that Moshe wrote, and then So if we're going to reconstruct uh, Ukraine, one of the things is the ports need to be up and active so that uh, material supplies and uh, uh, resources can be delivered. And uh, this is a, a nice paper that explains uh, uh, the importance of this. But uh, Moshe, I'll let you uh, talk about this in context of what's turned out to be uh, really happening. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, thanks for the nice introduction, Mike, and the reference to the thought leadership paper. I, I do want to take a moment to uh, you know thank uh, this just great panel of experts. Uh, I'm very humbled to be uh, you know sitting next to you virtually, um, given you know everything that uh, you've all done in your careers and the impact that you've made uh, within microgrids and, and quite frankly the asset management environment. I also am excited to hear a little bit more from John about um, you know his experience in Ukraine the port there, what uh, individuals on the ground are thinking, long-term consequences. So when we when we do get into that discussion, John, I, I would uh, yeah, love to hear a bit more and share with the group. Uh, you know, I think what we were trying to do with the thought leadership piece was move the, the current thinking from the tactical to the strategic. And ISO 55000 is all about the strategic, right? The basis is strategic asset management planning. Um, I couldn't be happier to see what has come as a result of putting out that thought leadership piece, um, you know, with ALN, getting into the community and essentially asking, what are some thoughts? What are ways to help, not just for the immediate, but for the sustainable future? Um, 55,000 is all about creating the value, articulating the value, and then working as a systems approach to asset management, which will ultimately create longer sustainability and effectiveness. The paper, as it was written, was really born through experience and knowledge, working the asset management environment, working abroad, um, and seeing the ramifications for not planning, seeing what, ha what happens if infrastructure is not put back into place quickly. If support services are not, um, you know, don't go live immediately, the healthcare environment, water and sewage, basic services, just to get to education, um, you know, things that should be provided to, to citizens across, uh, you know, across the spectrum. Uh, and the fact that there are, unfortunately, individuals, entities, organizations that will utilize this as an opportunity to delegitimize, uh, you know, governments or, or people that should be in power um, and make it impossible for rebuilding and reconstruction. Now, the discussion here, uh, tying it into to microgrids uh, and how we have representation 
from, I really love it where, you know, Dr. Robin, you spoke about the innovation that has happened uh, in the defense industry, right? And oftentimes due to uh, extreme factors, extreme environments where the defense industry has become very good at establishing power, right? They operate in this environment constantly. So, you know, taking those innovations and applying them to environments, you know, such as uh, Ukraine from a, a long-term perspective. Um, you know, notes that, that Tony uh, illustrated, not just about ISO and, and ensuring that, you know, the standard, the right standards are, are utilized, but when you do have the interrelationship of very complex environments, such as energy, Right. And the ramifications that that could have on you know, establishing microgrids in a, in a point system or a point environment and the larger network, um, you want to make sure that all of the facets and other standards um, are brought in, uh, brought into play. I, I was really appreciative of the risk management that was pointed out and you know, ensuring that that planning takes place now to define how these interrelationships will either make reconstruction uh, quicker or slower or not effective. Um, tying that back to performance management, utilizing leading and lag lagging indicators of success so that you can manage um, you know, the effectiveness of the reconstruction before things go, uh, you know, go awry. And then you know, John's uh, example within the ports, which are essentially a microcosm of you know, rebuilding within, a, within an environment. And I, I I really am just excited to, to even dive in further there um, because I think there are so many lessons learned that can be applied as, uh, you know, reconstruction efforts, planning, you know, come into play, utilizing ports as that microcosm. How many risks are identified there? The interrelationships between the energy sector, um, you know, the infrastructure, uh, the systems in place already today. So it's, it's just, you know, really exciting to be a part of this panel and to hear how, how all of this can be utilized for more effective uh, planning and implementation, you know, in the next 12 to 24 months. Excellent. Uh, thank you for tying so much of that together. And uh, all of uh, what we're doing is just an example. And I love that you said, you know, water and wastewater. I mean, that's probably even more important than energy, but you know, it just so happened that uh, it all went towards uh, microgrids first. But uh, before we talk about uh, Ukraine, all asset management starts with policy. And we have a self-acclaimed policy wonk with us, uh, Dorothy, and actually everyone, if you want to turn on now. But uh, Dorothy, I'd like you to uh, talk about, you know, now that you've heard some of what these other people are, are uh, getting into, uh, the type of policy that is necessary, you know, not necessarily for Ukraine, but to allow microgrids to be able to assist our energy future. Well, let me, I, I want to just um, be really clear about one thing, because uh, based on something Moshi said, which and I, I don't, I don't think he disagrees with this, but he referred to innovation in the defense sector. So this was innovation in the Department of Defense using commercial vendors. I mean, this was a very conscious strategy yep. to commercialize commercial technology that DOD could buy as a commercial customer. Um, it's a very DARPA-like uh, strategy to, uh, and, and one that DOD sometimes follows, but not always. There was a parallel microgrid demonstration program run by the DOD working with the Department of Energy called Spiders. It was very focused on cyber, and they and they did not do what we did, and they came up with these defense unique solutions. And they're now gathering dust. So that that's what happens when you don't uh, cultivate commercial vendors. So that's the key to this. Um, I don't, you know, the the big problem that um, the, and I should I should also say that. Um, DOD is not alone. The single best working microgrid in the federal government is one that GSA operates um, at the former, uh, it's a former Navy base. It's now the headquarters of the Food and Drug Administration out in White Oak. It's a, a area, suburban uh, Maryland. And uh, 
it allows the reason GSA did this, they did it entirely through an energy savings performance contract with Honeywell, a series of them. And it allows them to maintain very, very high quality uh, power to the FDA for their experiments where they can't afford to lose, to lose power. And then it, it allows them to radically reduce their demand charges. And they go on and off, off the grid on a regular basis. It's an, ama it's an amazing facility. There's no renewable energy. It's nat natural gas fired turbines. Um, I don't know that, you know, for DOD, the big problem is, is, is funding and, and same for civilian agencies. In the case of, um, I mentioned, uh, uh, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. There's another one at um, Paris Island Marine Corps Base in uh, South Carolina. Th there were enough um, improvements to be made in the operating energy efficiency of the base that they could structure it as an energy savings performance contract. So an ESCO like Amoresco could, could run it for several decades and be paid by the savings from increased efficiency. You, you're not gonna have that at a lot of military bases. It's gonna have to be, they're gonna have to pay for it. Um, uh, that's a money issue. The, 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 big, you know, the big problem is that the military operators don't wanna give up their diesel generator backup. They like looking out the window and seeing their energy security out the back window and they don't wanna give that up. And if you don't give that up, it makes the microgrid less economic. Um, so the, those are not grand policy issues. I, I'm not aware of, of grand policy issues as opposed to uh, you know, federal funding issues. Okay, Tony, um, you brought up uh, the concept of uh, the different energy sources needing to be able to work together. I don't know if that's a policy concept up so much as it is a technological, tactical, and operations reality. But is there any policy that you see that uh, might help uh, spread of microgrids? An individual who has their own little battery system or solar array or their own little wind farm. I mean, sailboats have little propellers on the top that they use to generate electricity. So mini grid of their own. The issue is not how the electricity is made it's a question of how we allow people who generate electricity in different ways to bring it together so that when Dorothy earlier talked about the tactical grids which are isolated you're fine it's only when you try and integrate them when you bring them together that you start to get issues where you need to be able to connect the wires without causing trouble it is generally the case that more people are killed and injured each year at lower voltages, microgrid type voltages, than on the high voltage stuff. Hmm. Because there are huge numbers of safety regulations involved in the high voltage stuff that you follow to make sure everyone's safe. But once you get to microgrids, it becomes a bit, for one of a better phrase here in Bauer, but a bit of a Wild West situation because I can have my system for it to operate with your system. I need to make sure that we're all interoperable. Hence the IEEE guidelines on uh, interoperability. So mm -hmm. the guidelines are there, they can be applied. It's just a case of do people wish to apply them. Okay, well, thank you for that. And then Dorothy brought something up that I think John can address. Uh, uh, people are like the uh, generators because uh, they're familiar with them. They're, uh, they have a history, um, but uh, your company is bringing out a green ammonia generator can you tell us about that and how that might fit into a microgrid system yeah it, um yeah so the the green ammonia so for all intents and purposes uh if you looked out the window and saw a 40-foot container with a diesel generator it looks the same so the engine looks the same the container looks the same uh it just runs on green ammonia so that that's the the, the big um the big difference is an internal combustion engine um and we have two filed patents uh, with our partner in the UK based on the ability for this engine to run solely on um, ammonia. <clears throat> so ammonia is not new, obviously, and, uh, and it has run on 
ships and equipment before, um, but with another fuel. Um, so that's the difference that we have, is that we don't have another fuel. We've combusted ammonia inside the, uh, the engine. So the two patents are based on the, the cracker and obviously the internals, but physically and aesthetically, it looks like a diesel generator. Um, and of course, with ammonia, it, it's one of the most transported chemicals, and it's one, and it's seventy-five years old. So a lot of a lot is known about it, um, and ways of making it. So we've all heard of blue, green, and grey ammonia. So you know, there's a lot of work, and that's where we're <coughs> spending a lot of uh, time and effort is is really understanding how the world is moving into the using renewable energy to create. Um, green ammonia um, that we can use on the on the engine. So, so that is uh, that that is where we are uh, with these filed patents on, and it's really all around the engine because the generator is the same as every other generator. Okay. Moshe, you said you had some uh, other questions you wanted to ask John. Well, I, I think um, you know, John, given your experience in Ukraine and in, in the part of Ukraine. Uh, you know, what are some considerations that um, you know, individuals on the ground are, uh, are, are thinking through right now as they you know, uh, plan for reconstruction? What can others think about uh, from an assistance perspective, given your, your experience there? Yeah, Moshi, I don't know um, that I, I have too many answers on that. I actually was speaking to somebody um, who was relatively senior in the Port Authority uh, on Monday, <clears throat> just because more from the work that my team has done there for a client um, in a port that is closed, the, uh, he was a, a key part of it. So we stay in touch, of course. And, um, but he's not based there. So a lot of these people, I, I know a, another contractor there, actually headed up by an American, um, but they're not, they're not there in, in country, they're, they're operating, they're, they're on LinkedIn, they talk um, as if they're representing or inside, but they're not, they're, they're, they're just outside of uh, Ukraine. <clears throat> so it's difficult to get any um, feel or understanding or intel of, uh, of what is happening on the, on the ground as such, uh, certainly for my, my network well, at knowledge. Well, we can assume that there is damage and we might even be able to assume that there's disconnection from the electrical grid. So um, what is the possibility of shipping a generator to the port so that it could uh, get the cranes into operation? Yeah, that, that would be relatively easy, Mike. Um, and it doesn't matter about the port, but you know whether the port is, a, is a, an Odessa, for example, with the container cranes, or up the river in Mikolov, uh, Mikolaev, however you pronounce that, um, with the non-container cranes, because you can still lift it off. So the ability to, to move this equipment. So this is what I said about the generators, load banks, you name it. Um, what, whatever these 40-foot uh, you know, offices, because everything is so sort of containerized, it doesn't matter where you offload it. So you could offload it right up near Kiev, if you like, in the, in the river, in some of those ports there. So very easy to, to mobilize some of this um, key bits of, of equipment, whether it's a container port or, or a, just a, a standard general cargo port. Excellent. Um, so then, um, Dorothy, coming back to you, I wanted to uh, see if, uh, you had any, like, if you were uh, president for the day or any, you know, had power to uh, uh, move things in a certain direction uh, with microgrids, so what would you do and why do you think uh, it's important to, to do that? Well, let me, let me mention one issue that I forgot. And again, this is a, you know, federal government specific issue. It may be even DOD specific, but cyber is a huge, um, issue. Um, so our vision for microgrids would, was that a military base would not only be able to shed load and, and um, uh, do demand response, but actually engage with the local ISO or the electricity market in things called frequency regulation and ancillary services and actually make money off of the microgrid. That is one of the great appeals of a microgrid that you can 
play in the local electricity market and make money. My understanding is that nobody has gotten the authority to do that. None of the DOD bases have gotten the authority to do that. The CIO folks who grant the authority to operate have, have not granted that, that the authority necessary to do, to do that out of concern about cybersecurity. So I think cyber is a big, a big, big issue for complex microgrids. I don't know. I don't know what it's like for the more tactical. Yeah. Moshe, do you have experience in uh, cyber? Uh, no, I, I, would, I wouldn't try to uh, uh, you know, explain that. We do have a cyber practice and experts in that arena. Uh, but I think suffice it to say, you know, it's pretty understandable um, that, you know, any sort of penetration that's available um, or weaknesses, uh, you know, prone to cyber attacks um, will be, um, you know, exploited by adversaries and bad actors, right? Trying to destabilize the power structure. So that makes complete sense, right? And if, it, if you can't build it secure enough to uh, stop those attacks, then um, it's going to continue to have those challenges. Tony, you are nodding. Do you have any uh, cyber insights uh, related to microgrids? Oh, your uh, microphone is not on. Apologies. Just that the physical isolation is a very useful cyber security threat limiter, and that the microgrid of its nature can be isolated so that it is sort of protecting rest of the grid in that way. So I would understand that for a microgrid to be added into the overall system would require an awful lot of testing, penetration testing, um, controls, impact. The whole system has got to be reviewed very carefully before you allow it onto the rest of the system. And much as I like the idea of having lots and lots of microgrids coming together autonomously almost, um, it's an opportunity for people to do bad things that we don't want them to do. Do you, um, do you know of any uh, uh, IEEE uh, cybersecurity um, guidelines or standards? I'm, I know ISO has some, but... Uh, yeah, I believe there are some, and I can let you provide references to them. Okay. And then we have a question. Um, <clears throat> about uh, resilience with better management and use of uh, microgrids in general, and then specifically for Ukraine. So uh, resilience is an issue that the Department of Defense is consistently uh, addressing. And uh, Dorothy, I would think that this uh, microgrids is uh, a system. Yeah, yeah, that's the, I didn't use the word resilience. When I was in the Pentagon, we talked about energy security. <laughs> then the word shifted, the vocabulary shifted. It's now resilience. But yes, microgrids are, are the, the, um, the solution to the resilience, making your, your base resilient against um, uh, grid, grid outages due to weather or, or cyber attacks or physical attacks. And from what I've been hearing uh, from our uh, colleagues who have uh, people on the ground in Ukraine, the, the issue is uh, a lack of resilience. There's outages. One of the solar grids uh, uh, systems that are, there's 24 of them that have been shipped to Poland and are being ready to deploy is to power batteries for LED surgical headlamps because when power goes out, in the middle of an operation, that's not a good thing. So uh, it's an extremely bright uh, white light and that's part of uh, what they're trying to do there. So um, we'll go in reverse order and let people uh, make closing comment, uh, uh, Moshe. Sure, uh, you know, like I started off, I think that this is uh, a great example of, you know, how to utilize asset management to affect change, uh, you know, for, for actors uh, broadly, as well as specifically for Ukraine. Um, it's been great to hear from the various insights and perspectives. And I know I came away uh, learning a little bit more on you know, how, to, how to conduct asset management more effectively and strategically. 
Thanks, Mike. Excellent. Thank you. John? Uh, just to mirror Moshi's words, uh, Mike, really, I know, you know, it, it's, uh, it probably never ceases to amaze me whether we're talking asset management or microgrids, how transferable all of that uh, that is at the strategical and tactical level. So, you know, when I hear uh, Dorothy talk or Tony or, or Moshi, I, you know, I can sort of plug together and jigsaw the scenario. So I think we can share and have a lot in, in common. It's been a really uh, interesting um webinar, Mike. Thank you. And uh, thank you, John. And thanks for all the work that you're uh, doing for the workshop and the presentation tomorrow. I'll talk more about that uh, when we close up. Uh, Tony? Only thing I was thinking of that hasn't been mentioned by the esteemed colleagues on the panel would be that we need to be very careful about language so that we choose words and we have a common understanding of what they mean. And that's writ large in ISO 55,000, that we have to know what the words mean. It's very easy to say microgrid, but it may mean different things to different people. And we have to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Otherwise, when we try and put the wires together, someone's going to get disappointed. Especially in this emerging sector. And that is one of, thank you for bringing it out, Tony, because that is one of the reasons why we wanted to start talking about microgrids in terms of asset management, because applying the structure of ISO 55,000, 50, and two on microgrids as it's developing will be very beneficial to making sure the language is aligned. So thank you for mentioning that. Dorothy? Uh, I guess um, maybe I, I didn't say explicitly, but I think so microgrids are a solution to grid outages, but they are also a way to address the problems of the, the grid. So if you can envision, again, I'll talk about military bases, but um, there are a couple of um, Air Force bases in the 1980s that um, worked with their local utility to house large natural gas um, uh, generators that had black start capabilities so that um, and and the deal was will the base will provide a secure site for this this generator in exchange for if the grid goes down we get first dibs on the power I think you can imagine something similar with with long duration energy storage which we're we're starting to demonstrate on on bases that you strategically locate some large energy storage combined with a microgrid and at, at critical points on the grid. And that then becomes a way of reducing the load on the, on the grid and actually uh, addressing the problems of the grid. Thank, thank you for mentioning that because uh, Chicago just launched a neighborhood battery storage unit and uh, that is part of a microgrid in, you know, outside of the DOD that's being actually uh, applied um, for use in the, in the urban environment. So uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Pardon me? EVs, EVs is another electric vehicle, vehicle to grid. That's another. Yeah, that's yeah. gonna be driving a lot of the need and therefore the, the interest and desire to be talking about microgrids in terms of asset management as a, as a way of solving that uh, upcoming issue also. Um, so thank you all um, uh, for speaking today. Thank you all for attending. If you're attending and you signed up, then you saw the uh, uh, rest of the uh, summit. Tomorrow we're having a, a two-hour workshop that you can jump in and participate in. There'll be online activities that can be assigned so you can kind of get a feel for how to use a uh, digital twin approach to planning for the use of assets and for their ongoing operations and maintenance. Cause that's what this is all about uh, is how to apply uh, asset management using the current tools and processes that we have and we have a very uh, real uh, situation, scenario of how to help the people in Ukraine. So that's an added uh, level of interest. 
And John has uh, done a lot to help us prepare for that two hour workshop. And then once the two hour workshop is over, we have a one hour presentation from uh, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern, where we're going to condense the work of the workshop and show the results and have people comment on how this process can help establish microgrid systems that are useful for Ukraine, but also for any emergency situation. And as Dorothy pointed out, for ongoing operation, not just uh, a temporary situation. So I hope you can join us for that. And then on Thursday, we'll be talking with the manufacturer of solar microgrids, who is from uh, has uh, is American Ukraine as a Ukrainian wife, and his best friend was just made the Minister of Digital Innovation for Ukraine. So some of this activity that we're talking about will. Uh, condense into uh, highlights and share that. And hopefully uh, the message will get out that we want to help. So thank you all for your participation. This went really well and have great days. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and we would like to thank the Andrew James Advisory Group for their sponsorship. For more information about AJAG and their services, please visit www.andrewjamesadvisory.com or email info at andrewjamesadvisory.com.